This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. And away we go. Hour three. Great day for talk radio. It's a Thursday edition. You know, we had the uh, prime minister earlier today. He's all chuffed about uh, Canada's involvement with NASA in something called the Lunar Gateway Project, a project that includes uh, an outpost that'll provide living space for astronauts orbiting the moon, a docking station for visiting spacecraft, and laboratories for research. Well, we're all about the science here on The Oakley Show, which is why we do uh, almost now on a weekly basis, which is a good thing. Invite Dan Riskin to join us, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Danny's in the house. How you doing? I'm psyched to be here. I'm having a great time. Well, listen, uh, this Lunar Gateway Project, uh, you familiar with this? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, it's about getting out into space, and so... uh, we have an international space station and that's been great for 20 years. And I mean, somebody has been in space since 2000, right? So, um, you know, we've been doing really great as a species to get out there, but we're only like 300 kilometers from the surface. I mean, you're just barely really in space. So we'd like to get a little farther out. Like we did in the sixties, get out to the moon and stuff like that. And ultimately the moon's not the, the ultimate goal. We want to go and see the planets and stuff, but a lot of the technologies that get us there are international space station technologies, but the next step is to build to, to get a little farther. And so, going to the moon is the next step on the way to Mars, and it's a step in the right direction. So, what's the return on investment getting to Mars? I mean, what's the uh, end game or the ultimate goal? You know, it it depends on what you're trying to prioritize. So, one of the short term uh, benefits is that you create jobs for people who have lots of schooling in Canada, and you keep a lot of those smart people from draining to the states. And so, you create uh, opportunities for for graduate students, for universities, uh, and for industry to make really cool stuff. And Canada has, uh, you know, people like to make little jokes about the Canada arm, like, oh, look, there's a space station. Canada built the arm on it. but And that sounds lame, but it isn't. Mm. It's a great arm, and you need an arm, right? <laughs> I mean, like, if you don't have an arm, how are you supposed to grab that satellite and stick it into the cargo bay? And so we did such a great job on Canadarm that for the International Space Station, we built Canadarm too. And so, surprise, surprise, the, the probable uh, participation of Canada on this next Lunar Gateway project is probably going to be Canadarm 3. But, I mean, it's it gets harder and harder because a Canadarm is a, like a remote-controlled, you know, video game thing that, you know, uh, somebody has to know how to operate, and that's one of the things that David Saint-Jacques is doing on the International Space Station now. But Canadarm 3 at this lunar outpost, there would be nobody out there most of the time, and so it would have to know how to do stuff itself. So it would have to be artificially intelligent and it would have to be this crazy arm and i've seen animations that nasa's put out about what this arm would look like and instead of just like an arm that's attached in one spot and reaches around it's almost like a at least in this animation it's almost like a snake where like it grabs with one end and then the other end comes loose and then it like inchworms its way around the outside of the space station to grab things so like this is uh, uh the arm's getting kind of cool so <laughs> i don't know I, I have a lot of friends that love to make fun of canada arm but the the point is Canada has really set itself up as the best country in the world when it comes to robotics for space. And so it's exciting to know that we're going to be playing that role here. Okay. Apart from those great feats of engineering, uh, why then the necessity to do that out in space? Uh, is there some, you called it about prioritizing what the ROI would be, the return on right. investment. What are we searching for life uh, in other forms in 
our uh, solar system or outside of our solar system? Yeah, I mean, life on Earth could go on quite happily without ever leaving the planet. It's But humans just aren't built like that. We always want to go somewhere else. We always want to explore the places we haven't been. And that that is the great frontier. And that is where human civilization is trying to get to next. And, you know, we may say, you know what, Canada's not that into going there now, but in 20 years, somebody else is going to go there. It's, it's just, it's part of human nature. And the answers that we can get from going to places like that sometimes are the ones we expect you know like uh, we might find a shred of DNA there for example and that would change the whole way we think about the origins of life did did life start somewhere else in the solar system and spread to all the planets or does life independently start in different places and if it does does it come out the same um, those kinds of questions but sometimes it's unanticipated consequences and one of my favorite sort of parables of this is, you know, a bunch of nerdy physicists wanted to smash atoms together to look at what the universe is made out of. And everybody said, well, what are you doing that for? Well, we want to know the fundamental building blocks of the universe. And and a lot of people would say that, you know, there's no point. But those same nerdy scientists needed a way to communicate the results to each other. So they invented the internet. And now everybody's like hanging off every URL. Like, of course, our lives revolve around this. And it was an unintended consequence of letting smart people do the things that smart people do. So if we go to a place like Mars, you just don't know what's going to come out of it. There's no way to predict it. But in general, it's a good idea when all the smart people are saying, let's go do this really exciting thing because it's going to be great for humanity. Sometimes letting them do that is a good idea. Who knew Al Gore was a nerdy scientist? <laughs> he, I don't know why he says he invented the Internet. He clearly did not. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, well, a politician who's fabricating a story. Uh, yeah, weird, that's, eh? you know, well, welcome back to Earth. I mean, it seems yeah, right, endemic. Right. That'll here. never happen on Mars. Uh, well, hey, by the way, if we did find life, look, I mean, we've got all these scientific sh- uh, sci fi shows and so on and so sure. forth, and it's pretty much advanced. But uh, what is the standard for uh, everybody clicking their heels and agog if we find, as you say, any shred of DNA. Well, DNA would be crazy because, I mean, that, I mean, DNA is like this building block that happens to have these four different base pairs and there's evidence that you don't have to use A's, C's, T's, and G's to make DNA. It could have been other letters that are in there. So if we found DNA that looked like our DNA on Mars, the first thing everybody would assume is that it's contamination because it'd be so crazy. But, you know, like amino acids, for example, are, you know, they're, they're parts of our life. And we used to think that that's something that just got created here on Earth. But now we find amino acids on comets. So we know those things were floating around. So, uh, one of the big questions is how likely was life to show up on earth and why did it take so long? And is it something that we were lucky about or is it something that is almost inevitable if you have certain conditions and the stuff that I've seen more recently suggests that it's inevitable. And with Mars, it seems like the planet was ripe and perfect for life. And then all of a sudden it just became a hellscape. You know, the atmosphere blew off and it got really cold and the water all went away. And so was, did life get a foothold before all that stuff happened? Um, or had life just not started yet? Or was life never going to start there? And ultimately, those all tell us things about where we come from. But if you're more of a Star Trek type person, you might not think it that needs to be about us. You might think it just, it's interesting if there is life out there. So I'm sure somewhere on some ball, somewhere in space, there's somebody with a pair of binoculars looking back or trying to find us and all that stuff. But I'd be just as excited to find a, a green mat 
on Mars <laughs> that you know was was doing cellular respiration. That'd be pretty pretty crazy. Sure, a green mat, uh, and then you could use it at a driving range, hit some golf balls. <laughs> right, right. You could take golf. See, sure. that is okay. So it depends what you're prioritizing. It's so we can golf on Mars. Is that the answer you want? Because the air is only one tenth or one percent as dense. So right. your golf ball would go so far. Well, so there you go. Even if I topped it, it'd go three hundred yards. Yeah. Uh, make guys like yeah, uh, yeah Bubba Watson blush. All right, with Dan Risk, and you know, on the matter of uh, exploring. Now, this is interesting because, you know, as much as we do uh, direct our gaze to outer space, uh, there are large tracts of the ocean that are still unexplored. Yes, absolutely. And and new things are coming out all the time. And what I'm excited about is a new paper that just came out about sharks suggesting that the rate of shark attacks is on the rise. Ooh. I know. You wouldn't think that because we have all heard so many times that sharks are in danger, their numbers are way down, but it turns out that there are just so many more people in the water in so many more places that they're coming into contact with sharks more frequently. And so this this raise, you know, this this rise is is significant. It's going up, but it's still a tiny, tiny number. So um, basically every year in the United States, for example, which is one of the countries that gets the most shark bites, every year somewhere around 20 people get bitten by a shark. And most of the time it's very minor, but you're, if you do get bitten by a shark, about 2% of the time you will die. So it's a small number and then a small number on top of that. And so the, the, I looked, I was looking for comparisons from the CDC on death rates and I figured out that you're 150 times more likely to be killed by your lawnmower than by a shark. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, those are the actuarial tables. Yeah. With Dan Risk and again, uh, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Uh, interesting because, you know, when we take it right back to uh, point zero, I guess, the Garden of Eden, I believe, is uh, where you evolutionary biologists believe that life uh, really began. Yeah, that's what we all say, yeah. <laughs> well, and then, you know, there was the, there was the snake tempting Eve and sure. uh, so on and so forth. Snakes fascinate me. I'm not a real fan, but uh, the way they, they maneuver. I saw one uh, while I was golfing in Florida recently, and boy, they just cut right through the grass like uh, there's no impediment. But, you know, how do they a- actually move? Because their skin is rather, you know, I don't mean... There's, they don't have legs as far I know, as I can they tell. they don't have legs. That's it with snakes. Like, what, how does it move? Yeah. What is it doing? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's a good question if you're into snakes, but it's also a good question if you're into robotics, especially if you're trying to build a robot that can, say, go into a collapsed building and find survivors. Um, you know, uh, making your robot walk on four legs just isn't really ideal if you're going over rubble. A snake, now you're talking, right? Snakes can go through anything. So how do you move the snake forward and how do you control it? Because if you have a snake and it's going through a pile of rubble, there's like a million different ways you could push and so the question that these researchers were asking is like, how does a snake push? What, what, how does it choose which way to go? And what they did is they set up this force platform and they had these like uh, wooden dowels that the snakes would go through, like a, a bunch of slits, like going uh, out of a baby's crib. If you want to have something to picture a snake doing, that'll make you feel very relaxed. And uh, so anyway, the snake goes through this, this grate and, and keeps going. And what they found was that the snake pays no attention to the grate. It's got a way to wiggle. It's almost like a little dance move it's doing. It's like my seven-year-old when he does that um, that Fortnite dance where he's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know doing that swinging his arms around I forget what that thing's called uh-huh. but uh, but what is it the floss 
floss. Yeah, yeah. Floss, so my, my seven-year-old flosses. Right. Snakes do an analogous thing. They don't floss because they don't have arms or legs. <laughs> uh, but they, they have this wiggle they use, and they don't care if, where the dowel is. They don't care where the bars are. They just keep doing it. And so uh, this is neat if you're thinking about how snakes control their movement. They just have a dance move that they do, and it makes them go forward, and they don't have to pay attention to what they're bumping into. But the place that gets really cool is if you go back to that rubble pile and you're building your robot, it means that controlling your robot just got way, way, way simpler, right? You just have to have the right dance move that you program into it, and then it'll just go forward, uh, and it doesn't matter where the rubble is in particular. That little dance move will go forward. It's it's called dynamic stability, and it's it's a way that it can... Basically, by having this this inherent way of wiggling, it's going to go forward no matter what's up against it. Right. And so does it have, like, little muscles that are pressing? Obviously, you need friction yep. to, uh, you know, get a mobile. And is it like uh, that that's what it is? Muscles are something that create traction for it? Well, what happens is if you may picture the snake making an S shape, the outsides of the S are pushing down on the ground while the middle parts are lifted up off the ground. And then as it slithers, it changes which parts are pushing down and which parts are pushing up. And what ends up happening is that the whole snake isn't pushing against the ground evenly. It's lifting up parts of it off so that it can move those forward. And then they step down. So it's almost like a zillion little feet mm. that, or, or one big weird windy foot I guess in a way but it basically a piece pushes down and it pushes back against the ground and then it gets lifted up and moved forward and then it gets back down on the ground and pushed back again just like we do with our feet Wow. Uh, yeah, learning. so cool. Yeah, well, you know, I'm learning more about snakes than I probably uh, ever thought I'd want to know. Uh, again, with Dan Riskin, Canadian evolutionary biologist. Here's something that really has me curious. Uh, background music, actually, and a lot of people are inspired by such, or they like to put on some background music and mood lighting when they're trying to, I guess, find the muse to write or uh, paint or whatever else. Yeah really is counterproductive. It really is counterproductive. It's so funny. So um, there was this test where they had people do, there are these standardized tests that are apparently correlated to creativity. So for example, if I tell you three words, cottage, Swiss, and cake, is there one word that sort of unites those? Cheese. There you go. You got it, wow. right? So that is a t- that's an easy one. And then, oh. you know, there are harder ones. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't that easy. You're very good. Very good. Very good. It was, uh, it was very rare that people got that. But so there's a harder one. I don't even know what the answer is. I have a whole list of them. But um, people were taking a test where they had to fill those out mm. and seeing how well they could do with different noises playing. And you would think that if there's background music playing, it would make no big difference, especially if it's music in another language, so you're not distracted by the words. And what they found was that music in your own language, music in another language, music without any words, you do worse than if it's just the background quiet noise of a library, for example. So there's something about your brain and your ability to focus on creativity tasks that uh, gets interfered with when you listen to, to music. And and for a lot of people, this is going to be uh, sad news because, you know, maybe you're an artist and you have like a, a method, right? You like to sit down in your studio and you like to play a certain type of music and you like to paint or whatever. And this study isn't telling you to stop doing that, but it's saying uh, if you're studying for a certain kind of test or if you're really trying to get your brain turned on and it's a new sort of thing that you're really trying to work, um, you may be working against yourself by having the music on in the background. It might be better to have it quiet or to have something that isn't music as a background noise. And uh, I was surprised by that. But again, it's a creativity type experiment. It's not, there are a lot of other things you can do with your brain that might work just fine with music. Uh, You can get into a groove or whatever. But when it comes to thinking outside the box and trying to like pull those words together and figure out what the answer is, the common thread, um, it turns out music doesn't help. More than likely, there may be exceptions as you say, but uh, for the most part, 
Well, that's verifiable. Uh, it's not something that can actually bolster your creativity. Fascinating, yeah. as always. All these studies into science with Dan Riskin, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. We're going to do it again real soon, aren't we? Yeah, I look forward to it. As do I. Uh, We'll come back in a moment. There are other things I wanted to address, and that includes, of course, uh, this story that continues to fester around SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Prime Minister, Jerry Butts. It's on The Oakley Show. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.